So today I want to begin with a story about a couple that we will call John and Emily and all of the the details have been changed. Actually, not all the details. A lot of the details have been changed in this story, but they were definitely a couple that was navigating the rocky terrain of emotional immaturity. Emily found the podcast and listened and reached out. I eventually did some work with this couple. They've been married for about 15 years and they seemed like a very good match. Everything was amazing and wonderful at first. But then as they start having kids and financial challenges and all kinds of things that came up in the relationship, now they have to deal with some things. And this is where John's emotional immaturity started to really show. And then Emily fell into that role of pathological kindness. He was the emotionally immature, or at this point, we're trying to figure out if he's more narcissistic. And welcome to trauma bond and human magnet syndrome and, and all of those things. Emily started to feel really alone when it came to handling the family responsibilities. And John, as charming as he was, and he could win over people at work and in his church community, he would then become this different person at home where he became more like a, a tyrant and ogre. And that would leave Emily to manage their kids pretty much single-handedly, especially at night where he would come home and say, so exhausted. And so she needed to take care of everything as if she wasn't exhausted after taking care of, I think it was four kids for the entire day. So then one evening, this was the breaking point, Emily broke down and she felt exhausted and she felt unappreciated and unseen and unloved. And John finally took it serious. And he was surprised by her emotional outburst. And so if I remember correctly, too, when they came to therapy, he had uh, done the classic, why didn't you ever tell me these things earlier? Well, she had tried, but it took her getting really upset and basically yelling and screaming, which was not who she was as a person, to finally get his attention so that he would do something different. Then John finally said, okay, fine, I will go to therapy, which that is not the best way to go into therapy as a, okay, fine. I think he really wanted to... to alleviate his own discomfort. And he had uh, resisted that step in the past numerous times. So then in therapy, he, he listened attentively as Emily shared her feelings of feeling like she's alone and abandoned and overwhelmed. And I really feel like this is one of those concepts where he's making eye contact with me far more than I think a lot of people do. Not that I'm saying that there's anything wrong with that, but he wasn't really paying as much attention to her, but I felt like he was trying to read me and, and then also read her and read the room not in that uh, good, highly sensitive person way, but in a, okay, what's my, what's my move here? What, what mask am I going to need to put on? So I really felt like he wanted to make a really good impression, especially with me in front of her and alleviate the tension. There was definitely tension in the room. So he then, I guess, grabbed the right mask at the time. And he promised that he will be more involved, particularly with the nightly routine with the kids. So she felt great. She said, okay, that all it took was going to therapy one time and he finally understands and they were great and they thanked me and they left and I think they were holding hands and it's one of those where I could look out my window and see that they were talking nicely to each other as they got into the car and I just thought yeah that's it's it, it doesn't just take one session and especially it taking a blow up to get the husband into therapy but for the first week the change in him was it was noticeable he started helping with baths and story time and tucking the kids into bed. And Emily felt this tremendous sense of relief. And they had scheduled, I think, about two weeks from when they first met. And she felt super supported. She said later that she felt hopeful for the first time in years. It, he finally got it. And he understood. But as the days passed, his enthusiasm waned, to say the least. And he started to get more and more irritable. And she could hear this where he would get more frustrated with the kids, especially when they were uncooperative and he acted as if he were surprised. Why were they so difficult? 
she said it later that she felt like he was always hanging on to this. This is because you don't parent them right while I'm at work all day. By the 10th day, when we hit double figures on days since our appointment where he had had his aha moment, hit that epiphany, then his patience snapped. And so then he confronted Emily and he argued that, all right, haven't I demonstrated enough change? Because this is getting ridiculous. There are things that I need to do and this is now messing up my whole routine. So why wasn't she just agreeing that they're good? They're okay. And why do they even have to go to the next appointment with me? That's a lot of money, all those common complaints. He felt that his efforts, he wasn't getting acknowledged or appreciated as well. And so Emily then felt absolutely disillusioned and confused. This is where I want to really lay out a the groundwork of what I want to talk about today. I identified three questions that I think people in Emily's position find themselves asking. One is, how long can I expect these changes to last when she has already seen him try to make change in the past and they do seem to revert back to old patterns because that strongest force in the human personality is to find themselves heading back to that home base. So if his home base was a place of emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits or tendencies or somebody who doesn't help with the kids or doesn't go to counseling, that's his home base. Then he started to venture away from that home base into this uh, land of uncertainty and it was too uncomfortable for him. So how long can you expect those changes to last? And then is this temporary cooperation just a way for John to avoid deeper issues or genuine change? And then she then was asking herself, am I setting myself up for disappointment then by hoping for a lasting transformation in the relationship? And so these questions and this narrative, this leads to a concept that I like to call the shelf life. And this is the idea that uh, the emotionally immature person may change their behavior temporarily when the relationship is threatened. So this becomes just another button to push, another form of manipulation or control. And that change, in my humble opinion, is more often than not, almost always not superficial. And that's aimed more at regaining control or getting rid of their own discomfort or manipulation rather than than stemming from genuine personal growth. But when you are the pathologically kind person and all you've wanted is for them to get that aha moment or the epiphany, then you are desperate for that to happen. And so then it, it is easy to let your guard down and then say, okay, this this is all that I've ever wanted, even though it does feel a little bit familiar. And so the change has a, a really short duration, like a, like an item with a limited shelf life, and it's not sustainable over the long term. And now I realize I could have started this whole podcast. The John and Emily story is great, but some gross story about shelf life. And I remember one time those little, they were the little uh, uh, cupcakes and I was devouring these things like nobody's business. And I remember at one point uh, not even looking down and I'm shoving these things into my mouth and I think this tastes a little funny. And then I looked down at the third one and I did not remember them having uh, fur on them up till that point. And then looking at that point that they they were well past the shelf life. And those things had a very long shelf life. Maybe that would have been a better story. But we're going to talk about the concept of shelf life. And then and we're going to look at where if you're asking yourself, am I the narcissist? That I like to just say, no, you're not. And we'll talk about the person who is the, I almost want to say the first person to find that information in the relationship is because they're on this journey of self-discovery or wanting to do what's best for the relationship. And then the person who then says, fine, I'll listen or I'll read. That's a whole different energy or a different vibe for the most part. So then if they stumble upon me saying that, 
And then they say, well, I'm asking myself right now. So then obviously I am not all or nothing, black or white. We're going to talk about that and so much more coming up on today's episode of Waking Up to Narcissism. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 101 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast and Murder on the Couch, The Mind, the Mirror, Me, and Love ADHD and Waking Up to Narcissism Premium Question and Answer, which I would still so appreciate if you would take the time to sign up for that premium subscription. It's $4.99 a month, and uh, we're starting to use those funds to help people pay for things like counseling if they are in these emotionally immature relationships. And so I'm grateful for any of that, uh, the support that you can give me there and go to the link tree and sign up for the newsletter. The magnetic marriage course, the, the new updated version is it's a little delayed, but it is coming out soon. And the men's group should start up in the new year, 2024. So if you are a guy who's waking up to your own emotional maturity or you feel like you need help navigating your relationship, then reach out to me and and we'll get you the details for the men's group. And if you're somebody that's reached out before and you haven't heard from me in a while, please just send me another message. Contact at TonyOverbay.com or info at TonyOverbay.com. Okay, let's get back to the story. So the more episodes I feel like I do of waking up to narcissism, the content that I share on the podcast is not something that I just come up with one morning and think, let me talk about this. But these are things that I've been saying in sessions, I feel like for years, and then that leads to sharing these things in podcasts. And at times, I'm going to call or pull out the healthy ego card because it's going to sound pretty egotistical for a second. But some of them find their way into the the proverbial zeitgeist. And for that, I am blown away and humbled and honored and just grateful that people find some of the episodes or concepts helpful as a part of their own healing journey. So some of those examples are things like the concept of popcorn moments, which literally came from somebody eating movie theater popcorn in their kitchen while watching the air quotes, the show of the narcissist in their life go through all the emotions in hopes of getting the pathologically kind person to take the bait, to engage, because without engagement, then the narcissist basically does not know that they even exist. And that narcissistic exit, sometimes the narcissistic medical exit, which uh, was something that I knew I had heard a lot of examples of, but I was blown away by the amount of emails and feedback that came from that and how common that was in the pathologically kind person's relationship with their narcissist or their emotionally immature partner, or the concept of how somebody can love you so much one moment and then tell you that you're one of the worst human beings to walk the face of the earth and they don't even know why they stay married to you some five minutes later and say, so, uh, and now what's for dinner? Also known as doing ride bikes. Because now that I've alleviated my anxiety or rid of myself of my own discomfort, I feel great, which even more maddening about the concept of doing ride bikes. If you are not ready to go out to eat uh, or ride bikes with the emotionally immature person that just got rid of their discomfort by uh, throwing a temper tantrum or being a diaper baby. Now they even get to say, well, don't you think you're holding on to your anger a little bit too long? And I've also talked about raising your emotional baseline, meaning, and what's ironic there is uh, talking to one of my daughters last night. And she said that somebody in her salon had said that uh, their therapist was talking all about the emotional baseline. And I, I was a very immature response where I was saying, I literally made that up 15 years ago. It's my thing. It's my thing. But then I thought, okay, calm down. No scarcity mindset, as long as it's being used for good. And I've got a bunch of content out there where it says it, but I was like, okay, uh, they better say me. The, the even funnier thing is my daughter also said that the client's therapist also says, and my therapist says you should never should on yourself. And so my daughter said, so can you believe that two of your things? And I had to admit that, 
Yeah, that one, I had a teenager client say that to me in a session 15 years ago, and I just thought it was so clever. But I will <laughs> I will take credit. I will appropriate the credit for that one. That's fine. But that emotional baseline, though, is it's meaning engaging in self-care to put yourself in the very best possible position to make the very best possible decisions. And I'm not going to lie, I jotted that one down a little bit earlier, and I was thinking, why have I not said that? that way before because it rhymes and and I'm a simpleton and I enjoy rhymes so much. Let me channel my previously emotionally immature self and now say with absolute confidence, uh, you know, it's like I always say, self-care is not selfish. You need to put yourself in the best possible position to make the best possible decisions. Like I always say. And even that leads to what I call the right guys theory. And uh, not talking about any link to the Wright brothers or anything to do with airplanes, but more of just after I just said that I I always say best possible position to make the best possible decisions. I'm basically trying to see if, if you bought that, that I always say that. And I think you find that the emotionally immature person in your life will sometimes say something and you can get this vibe or energy that they're trying to convince themselves of it. So that's one where I like to call that the right guys. And it's almost like they are looking away to the side or behind them, hoping for some validation. Like, you guys believe me, right guys? I've, I've always said that. Or don't you remember when I said this is where I wanted to go on vacation like a long time ago, right? You remember that, right guys? Or we've also talked about the concepts of your PhD in gaslighting, or you'll never get the other person to have the aha moment or the epiphany. But where am I going with this ego boosting? Look at me say things now that other people say vibe. Actually, it's because by far what I hear the most is, and then I heard you say that if you're asking yourself, if you're the narcissist, then you're not. And that brought me so much comfort. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to dig into this anonymous post from the group. And uh, I've changed a lot of the details. And I've also changed a lot of the details from the responses. Now it would be really funny if in the responses, they all started out with, Tony, the things you say and do are just amazing. But I I didn't think of it ahead of time. And most of them have actually just been run through chat GPT just to maybe grammar them up a little bit. And, and then I have it change some of the details. And so I think that while there's going to be a lot of data or information in the very post itself and in the responses, there's one reply in particular where somebody who means a great deal to me in the group had the very nerve. The, the gall, the audacity to call me out as if I might have said something that was not 100% true. Uh, can you even believe that? So this episode will now be devoted, the remainder of it, to proving that person wrong so that I can be right. Because remember, two opinions cannot exist in the universe. And if this person has an opinion, then of course they think that they are 100% right and I am 100% wrong. It's kind of hard for me to even stay in the character of the narcissist for that long. But uh, truthfully, I love this person's comment that we'll get to. And it's about challenging my use of that phrase that if you are asking yourself if you're the narcissist, then you're not. So when we get to that part of the podcast, I will envision myself being four pillared by the collective uh, group of people, assuming my good intentions, not telling me that I'm wrong, even if they think that I might be, and then asking me to tell them more. Pillar three, questions before comments. And then why do I say that if you're asking yourself if you're the narcissist, how can I feel so confident that then you are not? And we'll get on all the greatest hits of differentiation and what do we do with our discomfort and more. But so first, let's get to the post. So the person said, I would love some feedback and sorry for the long rant. And I don't want to break down every word, but I appreciate that this person is already anticipatory apologetic because they fear that they are going to be a burden or I would imagine take up too much of someone's time. 
And that right there is one of those signs of the pathologically kind that going with the cliched, it really does break my heart because I really want people to, to know and understand that you can say the things that you want to say and feel the way that you want to feel and it's okay. And if somebody else says, oh, I think you were talking pretty long, now we're to my good friend differentiation. Well, that's technically a them issue because I was just talking and that's okay to talk and have your thoughts and feelings. You know, it's like when I will go on a tangent and when somebody sends me a message and I don't like when you go on tangents. Okay, I could say, tell me more, but I go on tangents. And that was the place that I've come to as acceptance. And then if somebody says, well, if you continue to go on tangents, you may not have as big of a following. Then the answer to that is okay, because my goal is to be me and to figure things out in the way that makes sense to me and then put that content out there and now have interactions with other people that I admire, care about, because I want to continue to fine tune the tools or the skills. But again, the person and the message just said, sorry for the long rant. I, it, you, it's not even, well, look at me now saying you do not need to feel sorry. It's a me thing. I, I am honored to be able to read this lengthy expression. Maybe that's a nice way to reframe that. But the person said, if anything, it's just nice to get it written down, which I really won't try to break down every single sentence or even half sentence. But the power of writing things out, I cannot stress that enough. And then watch all the yeah buts that come up in our brains. Well, yeah, but I don't want anybody to get a hold of that. Or, And I understand. And you can password protect something. You can even write it out and delete it if you need to. Whatever that takes, because when things are stuck in our head, they don't go to the, you know what? And everything's going to be okay. Because our brain, going back to that, it being a don't get killed device, is wired to go more toward the negative. In the book Buddha Brain, the author Rick Hansen says that our brain, it's like Teflon for positive and Velcro for negative. And it just simply put really is a survival skill that there's a belief that if for some reason we just think of nothing but rainbows and unicorns in our head, that then we will have our guard let down and we'll walk off a cliff or not see the tiger coming around the corner. It's amazing to get things written down because then when you start to write things down and they're somewhat linear, then they are able to get more out of your head. And look at all the yeah buts again, even if it's yeah, but I don't write well, or I don't even know what to say, or I worry about the grammar. Those are just your brain saying, yeah, that's a lot of work. And there's some uncertainty. I'm not really sure if that will help. I know what it feels like to ruminate so I can keep doing that. And that's where I want to say, let's do a little bit of that to what we don't know that we don't know. So if you aren't a regular journal writer, or if you don't express even your frustrations out in writing, that would be one I would love to encourage you to go on a journey and give that a shot because it can be very, very empowering. So she said, I, I started listening to Waking Up to Narcissism and that's been when it finally hit me like a ton of bricks that this was the issue. I'm hesitating because man, getting hit by a ton of bricks would actually do some serious damage, but I digress. Finally hit me like a ton of bricks that this was the issue I've been dealing with for all these years, racking my brain to figure out what to do. And if I'm just crazy because the things I feel are very real to me, stop right there. If they are very real to you, then you are not crazy and they are very real to you. And if you're in a relationship with somebody that is questioning your reality or your emotions or your thoughts, that really is a them issue. And I cannot say that enough. You are absolutely allowed to have all the thoughts and feelings and emotions that you have. Let me just use a couple of minutes to sell a concept that I just feel is so important to know. And that is that if we look at growing up, and I'm not going to do the abandonment and attachment speech, you're already out of the womb at this point, and maybe even walking around and asking for cereal and stuff like that. But in this scenario, if you grow up and there's a right way, then what does that mean? That everything else is the wrong way. 
And this is going to be from a manipulative parent, but it can also be from a good parent who just says, no, no, uh, let me teach you the right way. Because as kids, we're just going through life for the first time reacting like crazy to things. I mean, when you're a baby, your whole arms are flaying around. You are nothing but reactions. As you start to calm down the arms and stuff, the legs a little bit, but we're still just reacting to situations, all of us for the first time ever in that that scenario, that situation. So if we've been told our entire lives, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And we find our parents, whether from a controlling point of view or a, I just want you to do it the right way, champ, so you'll have the best chance in, in succeeding in life, then we start to become really on guard for what we even express because I don't want to get it wrong. And and this is the key is that when you're young or now when you're old, older, not really old, you look amazing by the way, but if you are now worried that your thoughts and feelings could be wrong, now all of a sudden we aren't able to express them confidently and we're looking for somebody else to tell them that that was good. That was a good one. There's that concept of validation. So let me say that again. So if growing up, which most all of us had an experience where there was a right way, which meant that in our minds, everything else was the wrong way. And this is the origin story for so many things, black and white, all or nothing. We crave certainty. We need validation. We need somebody else to say those, those feelings and emotions, those ones are right. Those ones, they're wrong. That person really didn't mean it. You shouldn't feel that way. I told you not to worry about it. So if you are, you're wrong. And so then what happens is instead of outwardly expressing emotions as a kid, now we, we put them internal. They become internal. And so now, I'm now approaching things and I'm very trying to be aware of, man, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Is it right or wrong? Let me, let me sheepishly look to my parent or my partner or my teacher or whoever that is and kind of hesitantly express myself. And is that right? But we need to reframe that whole thing, especially as an adult. And it's going to sound like I'm about to all or nothing, the all or nothings. I'm going to say that we need to drop that a right or a wrong thing when it comes to our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. They just are. That's where I get to sound like a hippie. When somebody says, why did you think that? The the real first response is, well, because I did. Now, you could be curious and, and I'll join you. We have a shared experience. Let me take you on my train of thought. I was thinking about this, this, that led to this. So I guess maybe that's kind of where that came from. Because if somebody is saying, why did you say that? Now we all of a sudden, oh, that means I said it wrong. What's the right way to say it? Or, uh, and then now we get into that. I feel uncomfortable. What do I do with my discomfort? I withdraw. I play small. I just acquiesce. Oh, you're right. You're right. Thank you for pointing that out. I don't want to get things wrong. Or we respond with anger. You know, uh, it's like, uh, how dare you say that? So there's so many things there that I think start creating that what's wrong with me because I'm thinking and feeling and interacting with the world. Oh my gosh, talk about wanting to have a redo with all of my kids. What a secure attachment looks like in childhood would be that I'm expressing myself. I'm feeling, I'm thinking, I'm doing, and I'm met with curiosity from a parent. Because it's not about the parent, it's about it's about your kid. Hey, tell me more about that. What's that mean, champ? You know, what would it look like if? And now they're, when they're young, there's going to be more of those real consequences. But then that's a topic for another day, nurtured heart approach with parenting, where you're not reacting and then you're building inner wealth. Hey, I love the way you did that. I, I need to do a whole episode on the nurtured heart approach here on waking up to narcissism. But I think that origin story is really important because if I go back to where I took that pause, even in this this post, is where she said, am I just, yeah. And if I'm just crazy because the things I feel are very real to me. So 
you're not crazy. You're not broken. You're human. You're thinking and feeling the way you do because you are. And there isn't a wrong way for you to think or feel. You are entitled to think and feel the way you do because that is you. So then she says, I've done a lot to try to make them make sense and to explain things I felt to him, therapists, and a few friends in total confidence. And there is no judgment coming from me. But I think one of the toughest things that I do see is when I lay out the rules of interacting with an emotionally immature or narcissistic person to raise your emotional baseline. We actually covered that earlier a little bit today. And then get your PhD in gaslighting, get out of unproductive conversations, set healthy boundaries, and know that a boundary is going to be a challenge to the emotionally mature or narcissist. And I've been doing a lot more with talking about boundaries, trying to simplify that as well, that a boundary is a me issue. And we often get those confused with ultimatums. So an ultimatum is, I you can't do that anymore. But in reality, I've just handed more buttons to push if I give an ultimatum. Boundary is, if you do that, then I will do this. I will leave. If you say these things, I will walk away. And just knowing that that will get tested. And that's almost part of the recognizing that there's this isn't the best relationship. Or I don't feel so safe there. But that fifth one is the key. And I think that's where now that knowing that there's nothing you will ever do to cause that person to have the aha moment or the epiphany. And I think that is the biggest challenge because if you're already trying to determine if you are the more emotionally mature narcissistic person, and again, I will maintain that if you are the one that is really wondering that and you're still listening to additional podcasts and reading books, you're not. We'll make more sense of this. And we'll talk about the shelf life of change. And I know that you will hear me say this, or you'll read other books, or you'll see other people that are other therapists, other other psychologists talking about this, but it's natural to still feel like, okay, but this new data, if I present this, then the person will change. I want to acknowledge that I think that's the most difficult thing and almost the last thing to to fall or to go. So I go back to her comment. I've done a lot to try to make them make sense and to explain things I felt to him, therapists, and a few friends in total confidence. And that this is a, a tough one because the more you try to explain something that makes sense to you and you are doing it in the name of, I want to save the relationship, which sounds amazing, but you're handing more buttons to push. And most likely if you're in the spot where you're even listening to this podcast, then you know that you've had that experience where I can't believe that he or she used this thing that means so much against me because I do see that not trying to be use my own narcissistic math, but uh, on a daily basis, I already had a session with where that was a big part of the the theme today. And I didn't even address the, I've done a lot to try to make them make sense. And this is a whole other concept where trying to make sense of someone else's experience, especially when it's somebody who is more emotionally immature, because I look at that concept of where you got a couple of airplanes taken off from the same airport, but then they're just going slightly different directions. And then year 15 or 20 of the marriage, you're in completely different countries at that point. But I'm trying to make sense of that person's experience when I can barely figure my own self out, but now I'm trying to put myself in the position of this other person. So often you see the pathologically kind person saying, why did they say that? Because obviously they must be hurting like I am because we're not in a good place or I saw them get angry. And when I get angry, then I really want to apologize or I feel bad. So they must want to as well. So maybe I'll make it easy on them and I'll go over and I will extend the olive branch and in reality, the person then says, oh, thank you for that olive branch. And they start smacking you with it. There's so much here where it does become an opportunity for you to, to self-confront and grow. Because if you're trying to still give that person the aha moment, then it can just really wear on you overall. 
So here's where it gets really interesting. And this is a, a really common experience. So she said, so he saw the podcast on my phone. Again, it's the Waking Up the Narcissism podcast. And the next thing I knew, he was listening to it. And at first, he brought it up in an argument against me. Now, let's stop right there because we're going to keep going down the path of, did he change? But I'm starting to do more with my concept of leading indicators. And so if here's a person that already was not willing to go to a therapist, was not looking to change, was continually telling you you're the problem, then sees the podcast on your phone and then has an argument with you about it. Those are those leading indicators. Those are the things that I think there it's data that we almost don't want to see or acknowledge. As a matter of fact, Kate Anthony, I just interviewed her for the podcast last week, and I want to quote something from her book. She said, I, I'd always thought that if I was just a better communicator, if I was just smarter or skinnier, taller, prettier, funnier, took more responsibility, lowered my voice. She said, raised my boobs, shrunk my hips, did more crafts, cooked better, had more interesting hobbies than I would be able to make my marriage work. And she said, turns out some marriages are simply unworkable and no amount of Stepfordizing myself or my marriage was going to get us to the happily ever after. But then here's where I thought it was really interesting. She said, talking about her book, and I thought this is where when you start to do this work and you are still trying to make sense of things, which I understand, and trying to give that person the aha moment because you're a good person. You want to make things work. You really do. And that's why you often beat yourself up because you feel like, okay, if I have done something wrong, I can fix that. I can be in control of this situation. And it's really difficult to sometimes accept that you could be showing up as your best self and there's still another person involved. So back to Kate's book, she said, talking about her book, but I think even starting down the path of listening to podcasts or just really going on this journey will lead you to a place of clarity from which you can make a truly informed and empowered decision. And then Kate says, but here's the thing, my love, I need you to be ready for that in order for you to get the most out of the book, or I would say podcast or life in general, sounds a little cliched, but it's true. You need to be ready for answers. And she said, for many of us, sitting in the in-between is preferable to getting to a place of clarity. In her book, Untamed, Glennon Doyle calls this the choice between an uncomfortable truth and a comfortable lie. She said, you know, you can't continue on like this. But for many, the idea of finding out that they have to either fully commit to their marriage or fully commit to leaving means they no longer get to sit on a fence that they've made their home. They no longer get to not know. So that all came from her saying that, all right, he argued about seeing the podcast, waking up to narcissism on her phone. He used the podcast to say that he was trying to see if he was a narcissist while listening. She said, I walked away and didn't listen to him finish because I felt that he was taking the thing that had brought me some peace, which I'm so grateful to hear, but brought her some peace and understanding. And now he had it as a weapon too, which I think is a real good um, assessment where then people are going to take a tool and they started out by saying, I can't believe you're listening to this, but then, okay, fine, I will. Because here's that emotionally immature person, in my opinion, still looking for something to gain control. But it, I know that we want to look at that as maybe they're going to get it because I, I hope everybody does. But she said, but I knew where he was going. She said, I tried hard to think that I was the narcissist and am realizing I'm not. Then he turns it around and starts saying that he does recognize some tendencies in himself. But then we met with a the therapist this last week and he said a few things that made me think he's totally figured this out too and is now using it. And by totally figured this out too, I think at first glance, I thought, oh, maybe she, it sounds judgmental to me, but bought into that it was real change. But no, she's saying that she realizes that he is now weaponizing the tool, the podcast, or even the things that I'm saying about if you are asking yourself, if you are, you're not. 
And then he said another part of the conversation that he thought he might have some codependency on on our relationship. It almost felt like he heard what Tony said about how if you're listening and questioning if you're the narcissist, then you probably aren't. And he's setting it up to make himself not the narcissist. She said, I was afraid of this. She said, do you see how this can happen? I actually thought it while listening that, oh, so all the narcissist has to do is hear that and say that they are really asking if they're the narcissist and bam, they must not be. Now I'm back to doubting my thoughts and working hard to stay strong and what I know. And she said, I have a note page on my phone from years of conversations to help me refer back to remember and connect it all because I get so confused and doubt everything or I feel so caught off guard when stuff happens again and after things have been even keeled. First of all, well done keeping the notes. And that's one of those things I think where we think I shouldn't have to, or I'm doing something wrong, but that's one to listen to your gut. And I think it's a good idea to take notes down to, because when you're in that trauma bond, when you're back into that, okay, but they do good things too, then, and it sounds counterintuitive, but that's where I'll have people in sessions where I'll go back through the notes of sessions we've talked about and said, okay, how about when he cut up all your clothes and threw them out on the lawn? Or how about when he walked in and tried to get you fired from your job? That is not something that happens in a healthy relationship, even if there's times where you also had a, a fun vacation. Back to what she said about hearing what I said, and then now he took that tool and is weaponizing it. And absolutely, that is going to happen. And here's where it is a lot of the trust the process. And I feel like from a healthy ego, I want to say that this is part of how you recognize the difference of what it looks like to work on things versus what's the next thing I can use to get me out of my discomfort. So that is why I workshop this for lack of a better phrase for a few years in sessions before it ever made its way onto a podcast was that the people that were continually asking me if they are, are the people that are coming into therapy and asking if they're the narcissist. They're the ones that are coming in and trying to convince me that they are the narcissist. The narcissist comes in and is just awesome and tells me about their spouse. You know, did she tell you this, that you didn't know this? And then if I say, oh man, let's talk about that next time a couple therapy, well, I don't want to make things awkward. And, and I get to see those kind of patterns. But if you're the one that is continually asking yourself that, that's, you're on the process of becoming, you are trying to figure things out. If your spouse listens to a couple of episodes, here's that line and says, that makes sense. So, and I am, I am asking it because I just thought those words Then I must not be because that would get rid of my discomfort. And now I also can go uh, wave it around in therapy or to my wife. And I can, and now I even get to say, Tony said, so, and the podcast says, so I'm not now. And now you're not even excited about that. And this is where we start talking about the concepts of shelf life and a little bit of intentional tension or positive tension. Where even just saying, okay, well, tell me more about that. What did you appreciate about the rest of the episode? Or what else have you learned? Or what are the things that you've really identified with? And that's where if it, if a person really isn't doing the work, it's just a surface level amount of understanding. Well, he said this. I just asked it. I don't think there's anything more. I'll tell you uh, an example. This is a person I really enjoy working with. It was earlier this week. And we've been talking a little bit about parenting. And so I've talked about the nurtured heart approach. It's a phenomenal parenting model and it's a framework. And the reason I like frameworks and the ADHD brain in me, not a lot of frameworks stick, but then a good old evidence-based framework like this nurtured heart parenting approach is really solid. But the reason I mentioned that is that I was talking with a guy earlier this week and he was then saying, man, another bad week with the kids. They have some challenges with their teenagers. And he said, I just, again, I'm not sure what to do. And I've known him for a while. So I just said, how about that nurtured heart approach? I sent you a workshop that I did on it, podcast on it, worksheet on it. How about that? 
yeah, yeah, no, I know we're, yeah, my wife's not really on board, but I, I you know, I, I said some nice things to the kid and I, and then I was able to say, you really don't know what it is, do you? And he said, I, I don't. Because that's where if somebody says, oh yeah, nurtured heart approach, that you, you positive stuff, you don't react. Yeah, no, we did that. That isn't something you do. It's not a checkbox. It's something that you learn and you become and you practice and you fail and you get better at. So when somebody listens to a podcast and says, I like this idea of saying, I'm wondering if I'm a narcissist, so I guess I'm not. Okay, I'm done. But the person that is in, in, in their 30, 40 episodes later, and they're still like thinking, I think I am still. You are not. You aren't. Okay, we'll go more into shelf life here in a little bit too. Uh, but this person said they have that note page on their phone from years of conversations to help me refer back to and remember and connect it all because it gets so confusing. She said, what do you do when he does something like this? Am I being a little overly suspicious or crazy to key into those things in therapy? No, you're starting to trust your gut and bless your heart and keep doing that. But you are noticing that is that waking up process. You've done the work and you're trying to convince yourself that you still are. Here's this person that listened to an episode or two. Now they're telling the therapist, I got to figure it out. You can look at that with curiosity. Now we go back to those, those five rules of interacting. And the thing that can be difficult is then if you are still trying to get him to have the aha moment or the epiphany. So right now, yeah, maybe for a moment we have to accept that, okay, he is claiming aha moment or epiphany. So I can do a couple of things. One is I can introduce some of this positive tension. Tell me more. What's that like? Then what did you do? What do you think it'll look like differently? Because you'll know very quickly if it's legitimate work, there's some introspection going on. Because I guarantee that if you and I were talking, whoever's listening to this podcast, you would have questions, you would have, there would be depth, we would be talking about just how long you felt certain ways, you'd have experiences that have come up. But the person that's just saying, I've just been doing my thing, and then I see you listen to a podcast, you've kind of shut down on me. So I tried yelling at you about it first, didn't work. So, all right, fine, I'll listen to it. Okay, now I know what to say. So she said, I had given him an ultimatum before I understood this stuff and told him I was willing to do one of two options. And I appreciate her saying that. So this ultimatum was before she was starting to really wake up and that's fine. It's the way it works. But she said the ultimatum was get divorced or he would realize he had a problem and be willing to seek help for as long as I needed him to. So she said at the end of the appointment, he said, I am willing to see a therapist because I want her to know that she should be married to someone willing to work on himself. And I love that she said, that sounds nice on paper. But we've been down this road so many times for over 20, 30 years. And here's where I thought now more data that's coming out. She said, after many affairs and other betrayals and a lot of telling me my concerns or issues are actually because of me, not him, or that I'm judgmental or I judge him, that I'm, I'm unwilling to admit my issues or I'm just sensitive or take things personally and other things I can't think of right now. So right there, I go back to the concept of a leading indicator and those are not things that are part of a healthy relationship that it's not me, it's you, even though I'm the one doing the things, but it's, I'm doing them because of you. You are the one that makes me do these things. Like he needs to take ownership and accountability of his own actions, because that's the one where that, that's somebody that has not had to take ownership or accountability. I would imagine of a lot of things throughout life. And I can throw a bless their heart on that one because this is one where most likely that wasn't modeled. And then if he got things wrong, and now we go back to that origin story of the, because if his parents in particular were pretty, pretty strong on the, this is the right way, everything else is the wrong way. If you do it wrong, then you're going to get in trouble. Well, then I want to do everything right. So then if I get caught doing something that is wrong, well, I'm going to get in trouble. So I didn't do it. Or you made me do it. Or I can't believe you even think I did that. We start to learn all these 
techniques or tools to get out of the discomfort by throwing that right back at the person that is is really trying to be more uh, vulnerable or open or, or looking for that connection. So she said, whenever push comes to shove, he says and does the right things that get me hoping things will change and back working with him. But before I know it, he's doing these things that are so difficult for me and treating me subpar and like I don't matter. So here we are. And he's saying the right things to the therapist and me. And that acknowledgement alone is gold star material. That really is because now, again, I didn't know what I didn't know. Now I know. Still not always doing. Still not even sure what to do. But you're aware and you are on that path of becoming awakening, enlightenment, all of those wonderful things. Acknowledging that we've been down this road before and seeing that, okay, yeah, it does feel good. I would love it. That's perfectly normal and human. I would love it if this was real. Absolutely. Is he really looking at himself and asking if he's a narcissist? Is he really recognizing his own traits and going to work on them? Is he really codependent on our relationship? This part's even difficult because when I start talking about differentiation and you recognize and separate your thoughts and emotions from those that are being told to you, forced upon you, manipulated about you, that I separate that and I can say, okay, I, I'm not sure if I trust this. Matter of fact, I don't. And I don't have to convince him that I think that I'm correct and he's wrong or whatever that looks like. And I don't even have to defend myself because the differentiation, if I now go back to these, is he recognizing his own traits and going to work on them? Is he really codependent on our relationship? Those are him issues. And those are perfectly normal thoughts to have based on the feelings that you're having. But ultimately, this is where you get to continue to do the work that you're doing. And then this is still that pathological kindness that wants to also do whatever I can to help him. Because if he's making a change, then what do I need to do? And as you become more differentiated, what you need to do is just continue to do and be. And now he is doing his own work. That's the hope. That's the goal. But that's a him issue now. So when somebody's doing legitimate work, then they can show up differently in the relationship, but it's going to be with more curiosity. It's not going to be telling you, you don't even understand. Now I do these things because that's still somebody that's trying to look for validation and tell you that you're wrong. She said, what if he isn't as narcissistic as I thought? Then I start even going down the rabbit hole of what if I really am, she says, effing crazy and confused and I'm the actual narcissist. The fact that we're having this conversation and we're reading this and you're in this group, you're not. And then she said, what's real and how do I figure this out? Help, please. So you've come to the right place. I'm going to start reading some of the comments from the people in the group. And again, I threw them through chat GBT to just change things up a little bit. But the first person said that they're so sorry that you're going through this. And he sounds calculated, like he knows exactly what he's doing and trying to manipulate both you and the therapist. And he uses, I love how they said therapy talk to make himself look better and more innocent. And it's a typical ploy of someone with narcissistic traits from your post. If he is blaming his hurtful behavior, affairs, mean words, treating you like you're subpar and like you don't matter on you, then I would say that's a pretty solid sign he's somewhere on the narcissistic scale. And that's where I would definitely say then down the emotionally immature rabbit hole or bordering on narcissistic traits and tendencies. The responses are amazing. The the people that are in the group, I mean, the next one, you're not crazy. You're not the narcissist. He's an expert manip manipulator using this to keep you trapped. It's all bait to keep you from leaving. Just a very very colorful way to explain this person after that. Another person said, I lived the exact same thing for 20 years. If he were truly aware, he wouldn't still be blaming you. Amen. He'd be immersing himself. What a good word. Immersing himself in the work and struggling with cognitive dissonance. That's not what's happening, is it? Trust your gut. And this person said, I'm a couple of years out now and living in peace. 
Another one, trust yourself, stay grounded in reality. And you're, you are, you're on this path. Somebody also said, I would also add, if what they say doesn't align with what they do, that's called manipulation. It's been important for me to focus on my husband's patterns of action and less on his words because my husband sounds so good, yet he isn't changing. He can only hold change for hours to days before cycling back through the icky stuff again. When he's being nice and good, it can be so easy for me to fall for it because I've been so trauma bonded. It is all about emotional consistency in the grand scheme of things. You cannot tell somebody that they are a horrible piece of garbage and then also they are the love of your life. That that doesn't signify emotional safety or consistency in the relationship. Okay, so let me get the, the comment. That's why I'm so grateful for this. She said, I'm so sorry you're in this place right now. It's so confusing. If you listen to a particular episode, she said, that's my story and I was in the place where you are. I was extremely confused, doubting whether it was me going back and forth, just like you keep learning that will bring you out of the state in time. Absolutely. Keep learning. It's very clear to me now that I rarely get feelings of doubt. And I love that that said, because that we are on that path of becoming and being enlightened right there. All that said about him sounds like textbook narcissistic behaviors. She said, it's him for sure. Blaming your bad behaviors, affairs, et cetera, that are obvious on others, taking no accountability. Don't ever doubt those clear signs. And she said, and yes, I can see how that happens. I've been wanting to bring this up with that low down, rotten Tony. She really didn't say that. She said, I want to bring this up with Tony. She said, in a loving, kind way, of course, because she said, I love everything he does so much. She's very kind. But I've thought so many times that this is a bit of a trap saying, if you question, if you're a narcissist, then that means you're not. She said, I'm afraid. I think that we need to look for other ways of explaining to people how they can know that they're not a narcissist. I've heard other experts say that it's not waterproof at all because lots of narcissists do question if they are, or maybe then look for any proof that they're not. Absolutely true. Or sometimes they realize that they probably are, but won't admit that to others. She said, my ex certainly questions himself and he's told me several times he wonders if he is. So that's the thing where I, I healthy ego alert, because I want to say what all the other uh, experts don't get and that I'm very special about getting an understanding, but I'm healthy egoing this of saying, I so hear where somebody's saying this. And I feel like at some point, after a few years of road testing this, workshopping this in sessions and experiencing this in situations in my own life, I feel so confident and now have however many years of putting the content out that it's a place, it's like we have to put content out and and you're going to find things in the content and then go with those things. And when you find the right tools or the right content, the right words, then it starts to awaken something in you, part of that waking up process. To the other person, let's say the narcissist, then it just becomes another exercise in what do I need to do to get out of this this uncomfortable feeling that this person is going to take this one-up position on me and maybe leave. So now I will take the very thing that they are looking at and I will then take it over, which happens so often. It's called appropriation. I'm going to appropriate the words they use. I'm going to appropriate the podcast they listen to. The I'm going to appropriate the therapy talk. And because I'm so special, says the narcissist, I will be even better at it than them. And then that will make them understand that I just, again, took the one-up position, their one down. Can we please go back to the way that things have been? Because I need to be able to control you still. And this is why I think the concept of something like a, a parable, if you're a, if you're a Jesus fan, he taught in parables and parables are fascinating. And this is now, okay, now Tony's called himself, Tony referred to himself in the third person. This is getting bad. Expert of all experts and best friends with Jesus. So hope you see the humor there. 
But even podcasts themselves almost become like parables because you can listen to them and they are different each and every time. Because if you're really doing the work, you're going to be in a different place the more that you learn, the more experiences that you have. So this is the point where uh, this is my parable. This is my, this is my siren song, my clarion call to then say the person that says, am I the narcissist? And they continue to try to convince themselves that they are. There's the message that comes through in the parable. The person that says, here's some words. I will use them. I will weaponize them just like I do everything else. And then it will not last. And then I will move on to the next thing. But that's why I'm saying, meanwhile, the other, the, the kind person now all of a sudden says, holy cow, with the right tools and maybe the right framework, I am not crazy. It just gave me, gave me a handrail to hold on to, but it's something that is so, so empowering. But then you're still, you still have that, that residue of your own lived experience or what it feels like to be you that I still need to convince this other person. And I still need to kind of maybe beat myself up because that's what I'm used to doing. So it is a parable. He's told me several times, he wonders if he is. And that's almost like where he's doing the, I'm calling it right guys. And he's like, I'm saying this, I'm saying this, maybe I am. Is that one working? Maybe we all are, you know, maybe it's still just trying to see which mask will work. What will get you to react? And his therapist just tells him, we just have to look at what it does to you to think that about yourself. Not very helpful. It isn't. And this is like a therapist, bless their heart, who isn't familiar with this population. Because at that point, that's the thing where it's almost like anything other than just, man, sounds like you're figuring it out. Because if I say, well, let me give you some other information now. Oh, now they know what to do with that. That's the breath of life. Wait, you have another opinion. That means you think mine's wrong. Therefore, I can tell you I've already done that. You don't really understand. And then they almost flow right back into, matter of fact, let me tell you what she's doing. So she says, so to you, it's not you, it's him. And to Tony, she said, please take this as friendly feedback, not criticism. How dare you? I don't even know how to do that well. It's fun though. And this is the part where it's so, it's so, I want everybody listening to this to get to that point where what it feels like to be you is you are curious. You recognize that you're actually not a bad person. You are of worth. You are lovable. You don't have to prove yourself to other people. If they're telling you what you think and feel, that's a them issue. And then when you actually have a relationship of trust with real people that care and are curious, then it isn't criticism. It's information. And I want all the information because I want to be the very best me that I can be. And so that's why I love this post and this comment so much because I like this person. I trust this person. So I am looking at this and saying, I want to address this because I want to grow. And if there's some room in here, then I will take it. So then she says, I think I trust you know me well enough by now to know I only mean, and I, th- and I think the world of you and your work. And I know that, that this person means well, but I did say though, I, I hope you know that I know that you mean so well, and I would, it would be pretty emotionally immature if I weren't open to feedback because I really, I did. I thought so long and hard about this entire concept before introducing it because it really is more about the person initially questioning themselves because they are the ones doing the work. And I would feel safe to say that in pretty much every situation where the kind person is asking themselves if they are the narcissist, it has come after a long period. I did a lot of O's to emphasize that of trying to fix the marriage and being the one who is trying to fix it. The true narcissist or emotionally immature is reacting to this latest discomfort by doing what they typically do. Take the information their spouse is learning and turning it against them. And it will be temporary to the narcissist or the emotionally immature person. But for the person who just found an oasis in a desert, and I did not use chat GPT for that. That was out of my own brain. But for the person who just found an oasis in a desert they thought was never ending, it will be the chance that starts to put them down a completely new and different path of healing. And I said, I'll put all this in an episode. Back to the John and Emily narrative that I opened the episode with. 
The story of a couple, John and Emily. Emily is feeling unheard and overwhelmed, convinces John to attend therapy. One of my favorite kind of movies is where you you see something and then you go back and you see it from a different angle and a different angle or you have different information. So we're going to hit John and Emily's story a few different times as now what the shelf life concept looks like, what it looks like if he was a narcissist and what it looks like if he was emotionally immature. John and Emily. Emily, feeling unheard and overwhelmed, convinces John to attend therapy. John, who has displayed patterns of emotional immaturity, is not usually open to acknowledging his role in the relationship. However, the threat of a serious relationship consequence pushes him to engage in therapy. So in the therapy session, John appears cooperative, listens to Emily's concerns, and wanting to present himself well in front of the therapist, agrees to make a change. There's much rejoicing in the land. Emily then says, I would like more help with the children's nighttime routine, a task she finds exhausting. John enthusiastically agrees. I'm on it. And, and everybody's happy. Lots of validation. For the first week or so, John's helpfully engages with the children at night. Emily feels relieved and hopeful. This change in John's behavior, however, is short-lived. After about 10 days, his patience wears thin. He becomes frustrated with the kids, especially when they don't immediately comply with his instructions. So John approaches Emily, now stating that he has made an effort for over a week now and implying that this should be sufficient to prove his commitment to change. Now he gets to express frustration towards her and the children, essentially asking for recognition of his efforts and suggesting that he has now fulfilled his obligation. He put in a week and a half of work and that's the stuff where I, I start to see more and more of that. So that is what I call the shelf life. It is a temporary behavioral change because in, in emotionally immature people like John, changes in behavior are often temporary and they're primarily driven by a desire to alleviate immediate discomfort, to, to try to regain control back in the relationship. But it is not rooted in a deep understanding or a commitment to personal growth. And one of the biggest challenges is, again, it has to be something that really it, it speaks to the person. It matters to them. Just like the people that are finding uh, podcasts and, and doing the work of self-discovery, they're willing to sit with the discomfort. They've been with some discomfort, and now they're just they're, they're consuming all kinds of content, taking it in, self-reflecting, and, and that's that that deep understanding or commitment to personal growth. So these adjustments by an emotionally immature partner, typically surface level. They lack a deep emotional or, or cognitive engagement with the underlying issues. So John's initial cooperation is more about appeasing Emily and making the therapist think he's awesome rather than a genuine understanding of her needs or of a desire to contribute with more equity in their life. And then limited duration, the shelf life of these changes, and it's typically pretty short. I often start with the, about a two-week shelf life, but then it starts to, I feel like there's some inverse pyramid graph something i was never good with math that the older one gets so the longer they've been in a relationship almost the shorter the shelf life so then john's it's long enough to reduce the immediate pressure or the threat but his behavior then starts to revert back once he feels that immediate threat of the relationship has just has diminished and this is again where you know that it's not real change it's we're good now with the discomfort's gone and the work happens, and I know I say this with couples a lot, but when couples lack the real tools to communicate more effectively and they get in an argument and then they, the nice person typically then acquiesces and backs down and then the angry person says, oh, hey, are we good? And then there's hours or days of silent treatment. Somebody comes out of the bunker first and says, are we good? And nobody likes feeling this way. So they say, yeah, it's, uh, we're good. I, I go back to again, the absence of bad is not good. And that's more of what this is too. So when in the scenario, John has done the work for an entire seven days, mind you, that's a week in some cultures, but when he's done that and then we're good. So now can I not continue to do the work? 
if they're, if he's really doing the work, it is a process. He's learning more. I never realized that the kids get so dirty. I don't know. Wow. The bubble bath, that's become less of a thing since I was a kid. And I mean, you're into it. It's not just check, check. I did it. Can we get back to the way things were? And then another component of the shelf life, frustration and blame. So when the emotionally immature individual like John is facing difficulties and maintaining the changes, they get frustrated. And what do they do when they get frustrated? They blame everybody else. These rotten kids. Because in this case, yeah, it's the children's behavior rather than reflecting on his reaction or considering more adaptive strategies. He is not becoming differentiated. He is not, whatever he was not doing, he's continuing not to do it. I'll have to have to clean that one up and post. So actually, I think we have reached a wonderful place to end this episode. I have a lot more on shelf life. I've got what it looks like for John and Emily, the couple, what that looks like if they are being emotionally immature or narcissistic. And we'll take a, we'll talk about some key takeaways of how you can notice shelf life. And there might even be some areas that with awareness, you can be aware of some of the things that maybe you do for change that then don't necessarily last. Not saying that in a bad way. But we can talk about that a little bit more too, especially as we get toward the end of the year and people are starting to look at uh, New Year's resolutions and goal setting. And so I know that's a little bit of a shift here to go from, I am I the narcissist? And then talking about shelf life and then saying Happy New Year. But I think we can make a part two of this and we'll get that one out very soon. So thanks for sticking with me. And if you have questions about this episode in particular, when you hear it, please send them to me. Contact at tonyoverbay.com or I would love And especially if anybody is feeling motivated or this really struck a chord and they have their own examples of what that shelf life looked like and what the things were that maybe the more emotionally immature person in their relationship committed to and how long that lasted. And what did that demise look like? Please, if you could get those in in the next few days, even after you hear this, then I would love to include some of those in the beginning of the next episode. So thank you so much. I appreciate everybody who takes the time to write. And if you are interested in the women's group, the men's group, reach out. And I, I hope that that anybody that makes it this far is, I know they're doing work, some sort of work, and I, and I see you and I appreciate you. And I hope you know that you really do deserve to have all of your own opinions and have shared experiences with somebody that really, really matters And if that isn't available right now, then that person that matters is you. And I highly recommend go find The Mind, The Mirror, and Me, the podcast I do with my daughter, Mackie. There's an episode called Solitude, where we talk about embracing solitude. And that concept alone is incredible because that helps somebody recognize their own worth. And and that puts you in a better position to show up for a healthier relationship or to truly continue to develop a relationship with yourself, which is incredibly empowering. Have an amazing day. If uh, if you are in a place where you celebrate uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Happy New Year, whatever that looks like to you, I hope that you do have a good one and know that next year, especially if you're here right now, next year is going to be better. I, I, I can guarantee that. So we'll see you next week on Waking Up to Narcissism.